Well, in case you didn't know, today there's a big game. Super Bowl Sunday is upon us, uh, and uh, whether, whatever your level of interest is in the game, and I realize here in this room there's a wide spectrum of uh, interest on display. Uh, some of us, it was all we could do not to come wearing face paint. Um, others of us are just, you know, maybe attending a, a, a little gathering of people or maybe a big gathering of people, and we're just there for the food. Um, or maybe we're just there because we hear the ads are funny and entertaining, uh, and, and that might be. Or maybe, maybe you're not planning on tuning it at all. Maybe you're thinking in terms of you just want to find out what network Puppy Bowl 16 is being uh, broadcast on, and, and that's the level of interest. Yeah, I know, that's actually a thing. I looked it up. Um, Puppy Bowl 16 is being broadcast today. Whatever your level of interest, wherever you are on the spectrum of interest, non-interest on, on this game, you have to be, all of us at least should be, somewhat impressed with all the preparations that go into this game. You've got the athletes who for years and for years and for years have been training, practicing, playing with the hopes of being able to, to move on to the field. You got the coaches and the staff who for some, at least the last two weeks have been you know, geared up specifically to, to, of course, go at the, the particular opponent that they're going after. But of course, you know, they've been doing this for years and years and years at different levels as well. You have the broadcasters and all the technology and the miles and miles of cable that's laid down there in Hard Rock Stadium there in Miami so that you can watch this game beam to the hinterlands, even on the International Space Station, I suppose, uh, as far as the ability to, to watch this thing. You've got the security folks, uh, some of whom are, are act, actually out there in the Atlantic Ocean on boats because, you know, it's in Miami, and so they've got to account for all, all these things, and they're up in the air, and they're down in the ground, and you're not going to see them in many cases, but they're there. They're there, all, all the, the preparations. Then there's the stadium, the stadium itself. As, as we speak right now, all the logos are painted there on the grass, grass which sits on a field, a field which sits within the midst of a stadium, a stadium that in the years just since the, the last time this big game was played there, has gone through a $550 million just renovation so that you can have these massive video boards so you can actually see the game if you're in the stadium. And then the, the, so the stadium, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the suites and the seats uh, have all been renovated and, and uh, juiced up a bit. And, and that took some 6,000 people over, I have no idea, how many man hours, so just add all that up, right? The stadium crew alone. So here's what you've got. Big events demand a lot of preparation, right? Is that fair? Big events demand a lot of preparation. Well, this morning we're moving into a text that is going to take us towards thinking about the greatest of the greatest events, that makes this thing this evening look like just nothing. I mean, really, truly nothing. You may be wondering, well, what on earth would that be? How would you put it on such a scale? Well, that, on what we're speaking of here is something that's on the scale, the order, the significance of creation itself. And then the fall. And then the incarnation. And then Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the Pentecost coming of the Spirit. What in the world are we talking about? It could be so big. His return. 
his return, the greatest of the great events. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is our text uh, this morning, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, a passage that is oftentimes referred to as the parable of the talents. If you're trying to find that, it's first of all, it's on the screen, but if you're trying to find that uh, there in your Bible, it's in Matthew is the, the first of the Gospels, the first of the books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is towards the end of Matthew, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Hear now the word of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. He also, he also, he who had the two talents, so also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who will have he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we need to pray, so let's do that. Lord Jesus, clearly we do need to pray that we would have any understanding whatsoever of what you would have us to hear. We come to you now asking that you would help us. Uh, we want to study this text, but we want to more than study. We do more than study. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed. We need eyes that are seeing anew, ears that are hearing anew, uh, hearts that are beating in accord with your own lives, being moved increasingly so in a gospel-driven direction. We need that. We need it so much we don't even know how much we need this. So we are asking now for your mercy. Come, O Holy Spirit, move within our midst, we ask. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is the, what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to just jump right in. We're going, we're, it's been months since we're in this text, in this part of Matthew. It's been November, actually. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapters 24, 25, this is Jesus' teaching there on the Mount of Olives, 
just east of the city of Jerusalem on the other side of the Kidron Valley. It's Tuesday of what is oftentimes called Holy Week, which is that week there in between Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey as the king of the city. That between there comes later, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Here it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday of, of that week, sometimes called Holy Week. He's there teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and here he is giving them an overview. It's really what the whole of the Olivet Discourse is, is an overview of the future of events coming near-term and far-term, near-horizon, far-horizon. We've, been, you know, we've talked about that quite a bit over the last, well, some, some weeks ago. In the course of this, here towards the end of this, this teaching, to press home and to get his disciples, get his hearers thinking, he tells a series of, of stories. We call them parables. The, the first three are, is the, the parable of a homeowner and a thief. The second one are, two, are a set of two different types of servants, good and evil, good and bad. And the, the third one is the parable of the ten bridesmaids or virgins, depending on how you have it listed there in your English translation. And you look at those three, and basically this is what the three stories are, are driving the hearer, the reader, to understand. On the one hand, when it comes to Jesus' return, it is absolutely certain. The eventuality of it is coming. His return is certain. That said, the timing is not. The timing is not certain. His coming back is certain. The timing, when it's going to be, don't know that. That's clearly what he's pressing upon his hearers, his listeners, uh, with, all, with that understood, he would have us to, to hear and understand that for many, his return is going to, most are going to be completely unprepared for this. Many, most are going to be completely unprepared for this. Even those who are somewhat prepared, he is, his coming, his arrival, his return is going to be much sooner than they thought. And for others, it's going to be much longer and later than they thought. Hence, again, this, this sense of certainty but uncertainty as far as the timing. With all of that, all of us, in one way or another, need to hear this. When it comes to his return, when it comes to his coming again, we need to be prepared. That's what these first three parables are getting at. We need to be prepared, we need to be watching, and we need to be ready. When you look at those two things together, the certainty of his return and the uncertainty of the timing, we need to watch and we need to be ready because he's coming. Okay, well, what would it mean, though, to be watching and to be ready? Well, that's where the fourth in the series of four parables comes into play, this one that we just read, the parable of, of the talents. And what Jesus presses in upon us is this. His return is a sure, certain future reality. His return is a sure, certain future reality. We must be prepared as faithful servants, as faithful servants servants is how we need to be living, how, what it means for us to watch and be ready to be prepared. But then, of course, what does that mean? What does that mean to be living as, and be prepared as faithful, watching, ready servants? Well, to get at that, we need to look at the parable. And we need to look at the, the groupings of the main characters because that gets us into understanding the main points as to what Jesus is after here. So the groupings are first the master, then you've got the good servants, the first two, and then the third one, okay? You've got, so the master, the good servants, as Jesus refers to them here, and then as he himself refers to the third, the wicked servants. So the master, what do we see 
here? What do we learn here from who, who this is and what he represents? Well, let's look at the text again, verses 14 and 15. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. All right, what's going on here? Think with me as to what this man entrusted to his servants. He's clearly a man of wealth, clearly a man of means, and in that time it was hardly uncommon for such figures to go on long journeys. Now keeping in mind, this is the ancient world, you go on a long, long journey, given the, the nature of transportation and communication, your return and the timing of your return could be somewhat unpredictable. So that's some of what's going on here. Keep, keep that in mind. He goes away on this journey, and he has delegated his wealth. He's delegated his wealth to his servants, and it's referred to as talents. Now, don't misunderstand. In the ancient world, talents, this reference here, and surely Jesus' hearers would have understood this in a way different than we hear that word. These are not gifts. These are not abilities. A talent in that time period was a, was a measure of, of weight connected to currency, so at that time, the rough equivalent of one talent would have been something along the lines of 20 years' wages of a common worker. One talent, roughly 20 years' worth of working wages for a common worker. You do the math, roughly the equivalent of today, we're talking $600,000. Just one talent. Okay, so one guy gets... One amount, one guy gets another, and one gets, guy gets another. So you got a guy, who, this is what the master has entrusted to his servants. What does he expect in, in entrusting what he has to these servants? What, has, what does he expect? Well, he clearly uh, de delegates um, parcels out different amounts to different workers, different servants, based on what he knows their capabilities are. That's implied there in verses 14 and 15. He knows their abilities. He distributes accordingly. What he expects is a return on his investment. What he expects is wide stewardship. If you want to think in terms of this man being like a king, which you consider how wealthy he was, you probably could say that. What he's looking for is the expansion of his kingdom. That's what he has in mind. Now, what do we make of all this? Like the master, here's the, here's the idea, here's the main point regarding what we could understand about this master. Like the master, the Lord has entrusted to each and every single one of us a portion of his resources, and he is expecting us to be good stewards of those. Let me say that again. Like with the master, the Lord has entrusted to us some portioning of his resources, and he intends for us, he's expecting us, looking for us to be good stewards of that. Okay, fine. Well, let's translate that into where we are now. Thinking about, again, these talents. What is it that he has entrusted to you, to me, to us, individually, corporately? Well, yes, wealth and material possessions. That has to be included in there, but it's far beyond that. It includes our gifts and our abilities, our opportunities and experiences, our circumstances and the time. Yes, the very 24 hours that every one of us has. None of which, none of which, those things we just listed, 
are ours. Not a single one of them, not one minute, not one penny, not one ounce of energy, if you can you know, quantify it in that way. None of it, or unit of health, right? None of that is ours. It is all his. We are but stewards. We are but servants. That's what Jesus would have us to understand, at least from, as we look at the master in this story and what we can learn there. Again, Jesus' return, hear me, Jesus' return is a sure and certain future reality Therein, we must be prepared as faithful servants for that return. That's the first thing. You learn that from the master. It presses us on to the second point, looking at the good servants. The, the, the first servant, the second servant, they're basically the same. You don't need to really distinguish them as far as understanding the main points of the parable. So don't get sidetracked there. They really teach us the same thing. How did they respond to this charge from the master? Well, for starters, we can say this. They were all in. They were all in with what the, the master was having them to do. Verses 16 and 17, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. They both, they both went out immediately as quickly as they could and put what they had been given to work and it was a doubling of the investment. So you see what just the exact same parents are looking for from their children, right? Obedience, a response that is immediate, that is heartfelt, and thoroughgoing. And that's what you see here with, with these servants. Sorry, kiddos, but that's just reality. Um, that's what you see here in the response of these servants to the master. And in so doing, they are commended and commended in the highest way. You see that in the master's response in verses 19 through 21. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then you see the exact same thing with the, the second servant, if you, it's the exact same wording as you keep reading. What do these two servants receive? They receive the master's approval, his praise, greater privileges, and a reward. Now, what is driving that response? That's their response. It's how they responded to the master's charge. What's driving that? What's, what does that reflect in those servants that they would respond in that way. Well, for starters, contentment. Contentment with what it was that they each distinctively, uh, separately, had been given. You don't get any hint of comparisons. Well, I got this, you got that. No sense of comparisons, no sense of complaining whatsoever, utterly content with what it was that they had been given, and a sense of trust in their master and his wisdom and what had been parceled out to each one of them respectively. They, they knew that the master was not looking to them to be and to do something that they could not be or do. But rather, he has given them one five, one two, and then was expecting them to do the best with what they had, which is had to have been tremendously freeing. Just knowing you do the best you can with what it is that has been given to you. Tremendously freeing, tremendously ennobling, tremendously freeing at the same time. Well, what do we make of this? 
Thinking about this as the second point and what we can glean from these servants. Well, the same is true for us. We, and just a face value, you've got to reckon with this. We will be commended and rewarded to the extent that we faithfully fulfill the task that Jesus has given to us. Just taking this parable at face value, we have to reckon with this simple point. We, like with these two servants, we will be commended and rewarded to the extent that we faithfully fulfill the task that Jesus has given to us. Now, how do we translate that, though, into our own context? Well, again, the master uh, is equally pleased with both servants, and yet they were, they, they were entrusted with, with something different, but both were equally faithful and beautifully, richly commended. Now, don't get confused here. This is not, Jesus is not speaking here of salvation or security before the living God by works or merit or how hard, you know, what you've earned. That is not what this parable is about at all. And to, to take it in that direction is to completely misconstrue Jesus' point. I mean, think about the context in which these men were serving their master in a context of trusting dependence upon him. They're serving in a context of trusting dependence upon the master, which presumes what? A relationship. The reality of relationship with the master. And that's why they're responding in the way that they were. They knew something of who he was, and they were giving themselves and trusting themselves to that. Again, the point in all of this is Jesus' return, sure and certain, as a future reality, ours is to respond to be preparing for that return as faithful servants. Well, that then takes us to the third and final point, the response of this wicked servant, as Jesus, this is how Jesus describes him. So how does he respond? Well, the others are all in. He's holding back, verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He's playing it safe. Now, keep in mind that in those days, in the ancient world, there were no safe deposit boxes. So, if all you want to do is just hide something away for safekeeping, it was actually fairly common to do exactly what he's doing, digging a hole and putting it in the ground. And still to this day, archaeologists are finding caches like that in the ground, you know, cases where it was forgotten or lost or somebody was killed or whatever after it was put in the ground. So this, this is history. This, this is real. This is not just a, a flight of fancy and a weird story Jesus is make, making up. So he holds back, and as opposed to being commended as the other two were, he is condemned in the most striking way. Verses 24 through 28, listen to what Jesus says that the master says to him, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. So he's, con he's hardly commended. He is condemned. He is corrected. His talent is removed. His privilege is removed. His, what little he has is removed. And he is 
punished. Now, we talked for a minute ago about what drove, what was kind of beneath the skin of the response of the first two servants. What's going on with this guy? Why is he responding in the way that he does? Well, start, let's look at how he sees the situation. He tells us how he sees the situation. He assesses this as a a no-win scenario. In essence, what he's saying is, here's how I looked at this, Master. If I toil and gain, you're just going to take it all. I'll have nothing to show for it. If I toil and lose, you're just going to punish me. So since, and he doesn't actually say this, but you kind of put this in parentheses, so since... I don't really care about the expansion of your kingdom or you. That's why I did what I did. You see, his response is his response to the situation is governed by and tied to how he saw the master. And he tells us that too. He says, I saw I see you as a hard man, harsh and grasping which then reflects what the master says of him, wicked, slothful, evil, idle. What do we learn from this? What do we make of this? As with the wicked servant, what Jesus would have us to hear is that those of us who fail to use the gifts that he has given us for his work... In this world, those of us who fail to use the gifts that he has given us in his name, for his sake, his his kingdom's sake in this world, will be punished, eternally cut off from him and everything good. That's what he's saying. Now, how do we translate that? Again, keep in mind the context. Just as I said a minute ago, this is not about, just as with the first servant, this is about earn, not about earning first two servants, not about earning your salvation, not merit, not late, no, none of that. This has nothing to do with losing your salvation either. This is all in the context of is there or is there not a vibrant relationship between the servant and the master? If there is, you'll respond in one way. If there isn't, you'll respond in another. It's vital we see some, something of that. So translating that, thinking about the many factors that play into our effectiveness in service in the master's estate, if you will. Such factors are, okay, we have different schedules and energy levels, levels of education and experience, age, health, self-discipline, motivation, marital family status, all those things come into play Stage of life, all those things come into play and the the, the extent to which and depth of which and breadth of which your effectiveness in the master's estate. Right, that's right. But here's the biggest one. Your heart towards the master. Your heart towards the master and the way you answer these questions. Whose resources are these anyway? And why do you have them? Whose are they, and why do you have them? Again, Jesus is pressing on us that that his return is a sure, certain future reality. We need to be preparing ourselves for that return as faithful servants. 
Now, just wrapping this up, we, we all know something of what it means to be prepared and the necessity of being prepared for a significant event. Right? We know that from everyday life and even just the news. So here's a big news story that's broken wide open internationally just in the last few days, the coronavirus right? in China, but not sadly, I mean, it's bad as anywhere. Don't mishear what I just was about to say. China and spreading. Okay, so the World Health Organization just a few days ago declared this to be a global health emergency. That's a big deal when you understand, you know, what that, the implications of that. The United States health officials have just locked down with the, one of the strongest levels of travel warnings they possibly could give. In fact, effective today, this afternoon, effective this afternoon, all flights coming from China to the United States are going to be funneled into seven airports. I don't know if you'd heard that. And any U.S. citizen traveling from Wuhan province is going to be subject to a two-week quarantine starting today. That's how serious this is. Now, officials don't know yet uh, how this virus is being transmitted. We're not quite sure. Quite possible it's airborne, which means that if you have a respirator mask, you have a very good chance of keep, you know, keeping yourself from being infected. All right, so here's a scenario I'm going to paint for you. Let's say, hypothetically, we know an outbreak of the coronavirus is about to just blow forth through the continental U.S., okay? You know an outbreak is imminent. That's one. And two you know that a respirator mask will keep you from getting it. What are you going to do? You fill in the blank. What are you going to do? You're going to get a dang mask. You're going to be prepared for what you know is coming. You see where this analogy is going? Oh, wait a minute. Bad analogy. Because Jesus' return is hardly like the outset of a plague. That's where this analogy crashes and burns. His, his return is not like the outset of a plague. It's like the return of the king, the one who loves his people and is, coming to, is returning to bless them, to come and make all things right, to reclaim and remake and restore everything, including even us and our wretched selves and this wretched world that is so fallen so broken, and he's going to make it new again. Friends, the news of his return is the best news we could hear. When you hear it right, when you hear it right, and he's saying, be watchful, be ready, prepare as a faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the master. And while you are away and you've entrusted so much to us, we confess that we hardly think about that at all. These two huge realities that we stand just in between the times of your having entrusted so much to us and your return. We don't think about these things hardly at all. We pray that you would change that, change that of us. Help us. Help us to hear this story. Oh, would you, just like a, a metaphorical bug in our ear, that we just, it won't go away. 
Oh, would you help us, help us here, help us see, help us live out of this. We long to hear this commendation. There's something within all of our hearts, wherever we are before you this morning, there's something within all of our hearts that longs to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. That was what our hearts were made to hear. Pray that you'd help us to live with that in mind. Ask this in your name. Amen.